listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Women of the Global South were instrumental in placing gender equality on the UN Charter, with speakers Dr. Dan Plash and students, chaired by Dr. Gina Heathcote, brought to you by the Center for Gender Studies seminar series. This event was recorded on 3rd December 2015. We are joined in the audience by some CISD students, some gender studies students and others. Um, we have uh, a, one of the CISD graduates, uh, Vladimir Souza, um, who later on will talk a bit about his interest in the topic of this evening and some contact he's been, work he's been doing in Brazil and with the Brazilian government. Um, Anna Carolina um, has just graduated with flying colours, you'll get the numbers soon, <laughs> um, from the International Studies and Diplomacy uh, programme and became interested in this um, topic as part of uh, her research in our class last year. And the document you have that um, uh, Leah printed out for you, which is this rather grainy document, as you see, I have an affection for archival documents. Um, she will talk to uh, later, um, but you can see from the title, um, these are reminiscences of the Brazilian delegate to San Francisco, to the uh, conference that created the UN Charter. And uh, she found it in the LSE library, the request of a Brazilian, Brazilian institute, following on from our work. And it's quite an entertaining read, um, we thought. It's my job to, uh, to start off and explain why we're doing this in, some, in context. And I thought no better way than to um, start with this um, fairly typical uh, page from an American newspaper from 1942, which is up uh, here on the screen. Um, and you may well think, being well schooled, um, what are the United Nations doing existing in 1942? It must be a misprint. Um, might be one of your first thoughts. Um, the selection of women includes Madame Chiang Kai shek. Um, I'm afraid it's a bit grainy, but you can find it on our website, I'll, I'll show you. Um, but these are women from countries that normally in history books are universally called the Allies. But at the time, the official formal name for the Allies was the United Nations. And um, I'll jump up in a minute and show you a bit more about that. Um, but you can see the women there are ranging from you know, state leadership uh, people such as uh, Madame Chang through to um, uh, service women from uh, uh, all over. And uh, they're being recognised in public um, in a way which seems perhaps a, um, a little unusual from uh, this perspective looking back uh, from 2015. Um, but it speaks to uh, a dynamic um, a feminist movement during the Second World War in many countries, in the United States, in the movies, you know, one sees uh, Rose of the Riveter, but I, I hesitate from uh, 
uh, going more into the gender studies uh, debate because uh, it's an area where my ignorance is profound <laughs> um, and, and Gina can uh, guide us through that in discussion. Um, but I will just um, say a little bit more about the context of our, of our project um, and how we got to looking at the women at San Francisco. The most recent output is a, a, an edited volume I've done with a Professor uh, Tom Weiss, um, at, uh, who ran the Intellectual History Project, some 18 or 19 volumes of it at the City University of New York, and we've had a collaborative project together for some three years now, four years, um, looking at the wartime origins of the UN and its meaning for contemporary policy. That's a, um, a, a lecture all on its own, and I'm not going to spend the time doing that this evening. Uh, but the context in uh, very brief form is that there is a extremely, in modern terms, extremely radical dynamic um, uh, politics during the Second World War um, belied by the almost universally militarist uh, representation, not militarist, military uh, political representations of the period. And that McCarthyism in particular um, was very successful in uh, eliminating from history and political understanding um, the radical politics of the uh, mid to late 1940s in all number of fields, economic and social policy. So that, for example, in the much maligned um, financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, if you actually read their founding documents, their commitment is to not to growth, economic growth, but to full employment and improve labour standards. Um, and at the time, uh, for those of us concerned with neoliberalism and hegemony, at the time, unregulated financial markets um, and high unemployment, hmm, Middle East perhaps, were regarded as principal causes of world war. And that what we now see as an agenda of uh, human security alongside and all too often peripheral to international security was in this period by state leaders um, in winning this conflict what we now call human security was regarded as fundamental to international security and we've written a whole bunch of articles uh, about this and a whole series of books and in class um, I had as I teach a class more or less of that title wartime origins in the future UN I've been concentrating on issues such as um, the criminality of sexual violence as a war crime which we discussed here a couple of weeks ago uh, these sorts of issues, lessons of that ilk that we could draw on for today and economic policy as I mentioned but in talking with the class I thought well I should think about um, as it were, where, where my students are at with these issues rather than just where I am and obviously uh, issues of, of gender loom large among the interests of uh, my class and so we started um, looking at uh, the origins in the UN Charter of how um, gender equality became enshrined in substantive articles of the Charter. 
and the results of that investigation, which I undertook with the students over some weeks and then carried on uh, with, with some, and is carrying on today, means that this theme of the women of San Francisco has become part of the larger project. And the larger project is something which we are doing formally with the United Nations organization in Geneva, which is the main headquarters, with their formal support covering a range of issues, economic policy, war crimes, but now linking into um, the issue of the origins and future and understanding of UN Women as an organization. And those themes uh, we discuss quite a lot in class, um, but they've been carried on uh, by and are being carried up on today by the current people in the class who may want to chip in later, but um, uh, Anna Carolina can take us through some of the thinking that she's had on this. Do you want to pop up in there? Share your thoughts. Good evening about it was that 
she found opposition from some women from mostly the United Kingdom and the United States allegations about raising the women's agenda in the conference. So finally, I'd like to read uh, to you a little bit of the document, which I forgot. <laughs> so this is just the second page. Um, so it reads, our first encounter with the American woman delegate and the British woman alternates was neither pleasant nor reassuring. Ms. Gildersleeve invited us to a very modest tea, which most of my colleagues were wise enough not to attend. During it, she started to ask me questions about my qualifications, since, as she put it, she wished to place me. To this, I merely answered, trying first to Martins, who's who in Latin America. She went on to say that she hoped I was not going to ask for anything for women in the charter, since it would be a very vulgar thing to do. I informed that, on the contrary, the need to defend the rights of women was the main reason why the Brazilian government had put me in the delegation. Ms. Wilkinson explained that she was in the King's private council, that she was the first woman to gain the distinction, and that nothing further was needed since it proved that women had arrived. I'm afraid not, I had to tell her. It only means that you have arrived. Furthermore, when I was last in England, Ms. Baumfield was already a member of the private council. So, what I found interesting about this passage, but also, well, not only the way that she writes, but um, also the, the different viewpoints at the time, you would assume that at the, at the time of the feminist movement, the United Kingdom of the US was taking place, that women would want to have something in the chart of an organization that was hoped to bring peace and to, to the world, but that that wasn't the case, and something that still happens today, women and men cannot agree with the definition of, for instance, feminism or what gender equality means. Uh, and also, at the end of her text, she says that women have come a long way, and there, but there's still many things that need to be done in order to attain gender equality, which is a point that obviously still stands today. And I also like what she says in the end, which is, the Brazilian ambassador to the UN told me of the opposition of the League of Women Voters to my name. It's a strange psychological paradox that often those who are emancipated by the efforts of others are willing to acknowledge the source of their freedom. I think this is one of the main reasons why it's so important to go back to San Francisco in 1945 and acknowledge the role that women and also men, because some men are also for the word sex to be included in the UN Charter, and try to understand things that we tend to take for granted. Um, I mean, I don't know if the word sex was not in the UN Charter if UN women would exist or if it would have been any different whatsoever because gender would probably be on the UN agenda today and be something that they're working for. But I think it's still important to just look back to history and try to understand it. And when Elise Fukim and I were discussing this, Elise told us that um, she, she interned at the UN Women, that when she told the boss about this, he didn't know about it. 
And when I asked my family members if they had ever heard of Bert Lutz, who had an important role in Brazil as well, they never had. So I have all this forgotten history. So we came out, we brainstormed a few ideas of things that we think would be interesting to look at. So the first one would be exploring the lives of those who were present at the conference, both men, women, and those who were in favor or against um, raising the woman agenda and including the word sex in the charter. And then try to use this history to better understand how it shaped the United Nations and the UN women, but also try to look at how the understanding of gender equality and feminism has changed since then and how it continues to develop across space and time because it's not the same everywhere in the world. So, for instance, I think that now the most prominent campaign for gender equality being sponsored by the United Nations is ever was in the C4C campaign. So I think that it would be interesting to see how in 1945 we had a few people trying to raise, to just include women in the charter and make them, their voices heard. And now, and now you have kind of trying to include men and boys into the debate so that they can become agents of change the achievement of gender equality and reminding us that it is not only a women's issue. So I'm really looking forward to see how this project turns out and what we find out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, Vladimir, who graduated uh, brilliantly um, a couple of years ago from CISD, and we have an online journal of global studies which uh, our students uh, post, students who get 75 or above in their dissertations get to uh, have their um, dissertations included and uh, that's uh, where I, uh, Vladimir was at our research seminar um, earlier this year in which we got chatting and as a Brazilian he started to get interested in the project and he'll tell us of his interest. Uh, thank you. Uh, so just a very quick introduction, as Ben said, uh, yeah, I've worked, I studied with the CISD and I also uh, work for the, for the Brazilian National Development Bank, uh, so ultimately for the, for the Brazilian government. So it was almost impossible not to get involved and not to, to, to get you know, immensely interested uh, by this project. Uh, so basically what I'm you know, uh, trying to do to help is to link to Brazilian uh, you know, official organizations, so the embassy but also some um, in Brazil. And uh, very quickly, why I think this is important first, because once you, you know, start hearing about it, start seeing it, it's right. So I think it's, you know, it definitely deserves uh, more attention. But also, I believe uh, very strongly in the symbolism of it. So I think there is a strong power of, um, yeah, inspiration uh, on having, you know, the history right, so, um, Obviously, you know, the United Nations, at least uh, for me, are, you know, kind of a benchmark, so a very strong symbol for, you know, gender equality, they're very strong in it. So I was, uh, yeah, somewhat uh, surprised and, and, and happy to see that there was, you know, it wasn't, it was a more spread kind of contribution to that, and uh, particularly of my connection, but also of other women from the, uh, from the Global South. 
And also, obviously, you know, Bertha Lutz in Brazil, she's very, very well known, so she's very respected, but I think this uh, contribution internationally is something that could be, you know, more, um, yeah, more understood and better known. So, so I'm very happy also to participate and uh, I think this, uh, yeah, a lot of potential. Well, Grant, my personal interest as with the whole range of this lost history of the UN at this time, in this case, I think is to think, and what we'll be doing in Geneva, and hopefully New York, is talking with UN women and other UN agencies about bringing this lost history into the mainstream of internal and external educational material of UN women and associated organisations. And I think in discussion, hopefully, we can talk about that, developing that practical agenda, social media, whatever. Uh, as well as the further development of the intellectual ideas, which is all I'll say, but I will ask Gina to act as a respondent to our our little venture into uh, into gender studies from CIS from Diplomacy. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Thank you all of it. It's really a fascinating piece of research, and I'd love to see more of the archive. I don't know if there's anything else there that you... Um, they had some correspondence between her and a uh, woman in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. but in relation to the United Nations, this was this was the key thing. Yeah, I mean, there maybe. was a virtual attack hazard error. Right. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just encourage you all to kind of push it a bit further, or beyond just the practical of thinking about one woman that might be instrumental at one moment in the UN, and thinking much more about what this tells us about our international histories or our legal histories which tend to write out women's participation and particularly write out the participation of women from the global south. So one of the things that my own research looks at is women's participation in post-conflict states. And if you look at the contemporary laws on these, which is mostly Security Council resolutions, they focus on saying we need more women, we need to have women consulted, we need to have women's groups consulted, we need to have civil society consulted on women's issues, etc. So this idea that women are missing is very, very prevalent in all the texts because the starting point is women are missing, we must include them. And um, I'm sure you find a similar thing down in your work. Everywhere that I've ever looked at post-conflict structures, peace-building structures, peace agreements... Women are already there, and they're already acting, and they're absolutely instrumental, particularly peace agreements. Um, they're not on, on any of the formal records. They're not on a, a little bit like this. They're not um, included often even in the formal meetings, but they'll be in the informal meetings. They'll be in the processes before the meetings that actually make the meetings happen. In the first. Some of my students have heard me say this a few times. But they're always present, and it doesn't matter which conflict... I mean, I go to which conflict thinking... Well, I won't see this this time. This is just an assumption I'm bringing. But every time you find the stories, one of the really good sources, and this is contemporary, obviously, but um, the work that they're doing at the ANU on peace-building compared, uh, which isn't necessary for this project, but often looks at what women did at different stages of peace agreements and ceasefires, etc. And so what we see today is still this writing out of women's participation. So women's participation is seen always, I think, in the UN as something to be added to kind of large social justice initiatives, including those in post-conflict communities. And what this reminds us is actually women are always there, involved, uh, lobbying, participating. Now, in this case, it's somebody who is actually a participant, a formal participant, but we know that we're also being women lobbying different participants that were there and having different roles. 
and to this day often there'll be different women's group lobbying whoever's participating and I think that that's a really important thing to stretch this from being recognition of one person to see and ask questions about what it is about the way we record our histories um, that leave off these stories or see them as unimportant um, uh, and I think I guess the other side of that because that on one hand that's just looking at women but the other side is that the, the feminist histories of the UN uh, seem to not include them so they create the kind of mm. double barrier of not exactly. including women from the global south um, I, I mean, it's just a funny coincidence, but it's some of the readings we were doing today for our Feminist Legal Theory course particularly picks up on Ali Tripp's work, which does look to actually revive this history um, of recognising the, the long, not, not just at this moment, but then through the history of the UN. I think that there's um, a currency in telling a story that says the UN Women's Born in 2010, the Security Council Resolution in 2000, is, these are instrumental moments. But actually, the Women's Conference in 1975 is a, is a hugely important moment that is actually largely driven by women from the global south. Um, and of course, CEDAW, again, is also you know, something driven by women from the global south. And these stories are written out, so I think that the, the double kind of disappearing mm. of women from the global south, but also uh, women disappearing when it's not a story just about women's issues. I mean, in this case, it is about getting equality into the UN charter. <coughs> Uh, but the UN Charter itself isn't necessarily proposed as a, a women's document. Uh, so then women's participation and women's lobbying around that gets written out as well. So I think that that really demonstrates the intellectual kind of project here, but I hope this doesn't stop with finding one woman, but thinking actually what that means and really teaches us about uh, when we're looking at contemporary United Nations kind of projects um, and um, you know what they, how they kind of similar kinds of... Uh, disappearances and reappearances what is it about seeing women as visible in the moment when they're talking about violence against women and not sort of at this moment when we're talking about establishing a global body uh, a global governance structure and I, think, I think that's really important the other thing that struck me when you were reading this though was the role of class so there's nothing that's said there about class but I mean it drips with the British yeah. class system oh, well, obviously the American yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, like yeah. Place you. they're having tea and let me place you all this stuff seems <laughs> to speak to me about some of perhaps the apprehension or the failure on the part of US and UK feminists is perhaps driven by actually the intersection I guess of, of gender and privilege uh, economic privilege and I think the discussion about the Privy Council sort of this kind of actually seems to mask an idea that actually her position and her success might be threatened if she spoke in a kind of feminist tone and we know this and we, when we know you know, we can look at um, I forgot her name, Hillary Clinton and how there's moments when she speaks on women's issues and there's other moments I think you know, where she steps away from speaking about women's issues, she's decided at the moment that it's a good thing to speak about uh, I think, uh, but there have been other times where actually she's stepped away from been very, very visible about being a, 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 um, I mean, I wouldn't want to put her as an expert on women's issues anyway. Um, and that kind of strategic withdrawal from presenting yourself as a feminist, if you have had some success, is often also about protecting that, but also about other kinds of privilege. And of course, the history of um, uh, class and gender and the United Nations or the, um, international spatial spaces goes back through the history of the 20th century. So I don't know if anyone's ever seen the pictures of the women that went to Geneva for um, 
1915 uh, for the peace conference and um, they've got these kind of fantastic fur coats on and they're incredibly elegant they're all white and they're just sort of dripping money everywhere and it's just like okay so this is who constitutes the women's kind of networks at that time and so I think the British and the American women are obviously part of that legacy I mean I don't want to underwrite uh, uh, actually what Wolf does you know and their work on women and peace and the legacy of that, um, both in the period of the League and right up to this day through working with the Security Council. Uh, but it is, it is starkingly apparent when you look at these pictures. It's a, it's a conference of women, but it's actually women only from 12 countries. They're all white and they're all very, very well off because they're able to, to travel. I think actually though the French women couldn't go because their country banned them from attending, which is really interesting as well, but slightly to the side. So I think actually some work on thinking about class would be really interesting in this, and it, because again it travels to today, doesn't it? And we know that yeah, whether women are from the global south or moving in kind of western spaces, they often also still represent um, kind of class or economic privilege uh, through the work that they do at the UN, and that that then often perpetuates the kind of interventions into the lives of women in the third world that they see as so. Um, Offensive and kind of ill-conceived in terms of actually understanding their experience. Um, so I think that would be my main things that I would kind of bring up. I guess um, um, I guess one of the questions that you raised was about whether gender would still be an issue today. Like, what, what's the importance of just having this phrase in the charter? I actually think it's really important, and I think it's worth thinking about. So one of the things that happens in 2000. The Security Council Resolution 1325 is not anything that the Security Council does, uh, but how women's groups mobilise around the language of 1325. And I think that the history of women's groups transnationally doing that is kind of is very much embedded in different networks. And I, the language of having uh, equality enshrined, in, a gender equality enshrined in the Charter in a period when you've got no other kind of international laws on this up until CEDAW, and even creating CEDAW is actually important because it, it gives that first hook to speak to back to power, to governments, to international institutions and say, well, you have to think about this, you have to think about gender equality because it's in the Charter. So I think you could actually trace, I, I'm only guessing, but I imagine you could trace the narratives that produce CEDAW back to the Charter because CEDAW is about equality and so one of the criticisms of CEDAW is also always that it's too narrow because it's focused on, uh, on equality and anti-discrimination project but of course it follows the thread back to uh, the Charter itself and I think that you'll find if you look at how women mobilised to get CEDAW created was actually to use the language of the Charter itself <laughs> just like women post 2000 use the language of 1325 to say well, you can't ignore women's experiences in armed conflict because look at what the Security Council's already said about this. And I, I'm absolutely sure that actually that, that thread could be traced. Now, that doesn't mean if it wasn't there, there wouldn't have been other creative kind of ways of mobilising and transforming international law or making it more inclusive. But I think that you would see that that language would have been used. So I think there would be more points. Mm -hmm. Well, let's open it up for discussion. And there are plenty of things I could apply to, but I won't just get everybody in and uh, have a chat. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. okay. um, my name is Lisa. I was uh, talking to Carolina about this project earlier. And my immediate sort of uh, 
why I was immediately attracted to this uh, this project when Dan presented it uh, presented it to us was for me how it could create a different sense of ownership uh, and not and sort of going away from this north south divide which you very much have today when talking about feminism as a Western project and 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 especially for the UN women as well they could use this very rhetorically giving more responsibility to, for example, Brazil, saying that you were so uh, uh, progressive when it came to the UN Charter, fighting for women's rights, so why are you doing this and this in women's rights today? Like, could you, could you so somehow use this rhetoric or this, these findings from, from um, creating the Charter today but in, in the politics of, of, of using feminism and, and change the relationship between how South ownership to feminism. I actually think it's quite important because a lot of international projects around gender equality, uh, the way they present themselves when they appear in a state, uh, particularly um, states that the international community feel need some kind of intervention, is it looks like a Western import and then you create two sets of problems uh, locally. One is um, a sense of ambivalence about those projects in among themselves, but also local feminist knowledge is often dislodged because it's sort of seen as, oh, well, that must be a Western import because of the mm. kind of gender projects going on, when actually there'll be a thriving feminist and women's history uh, and activism in the, in the state that then is silenced by those very interventions. So I think not just this project, but the, like, the work that Ali Tripp does, that really look at these histories and demonstrate that it's not about adding women at all is actually appreciating these histories really has the potential to, to disrupt the claims of powerful elites, particularly mm. in these states that say, oh, gender, that's a Western import and not, yes. oh, feminism's a Western mm. import and not actually appreciating how, how rich they are in communities already. Mm. Yes, I, I add to that and say I think there's more research to be done to, to make this richer. Mm. If you look at... Um, uh, but Lutz's account, but also one or two studies that have been written, which we can provide to you, um, it's clear that there are other women who are active. You know, the Australian um, lobby, in fact, I first came across this when there's a clip from an Australian newspaper, mm-hmm. that there are, there's an NGO lobby going on at San Francisco around the delegates. <coughs> That's um, what I mean. There's women in the kind of on the out and slightly yeah, so informal there's NGOs, spaces, there's, but the informal spaces. Very, yeah. there's also she mentions the Venezuelan delegates she mentions uh, and we see mention of African um, and Afro-Caribbean mm-hmm. um, uh, delegates and representatives and alternates in the conference um, and you know maybe the Brits and they have a very different perception of Bertha Lutz <laughs> we shouldn't take yeah. Bertha Lutz's account um, you know, as one source uh, in, entirely. Um, so I think there's a, there's a rich. It isn't a question of honouring one woman. I think I think the women of San Francisco are people to, in a sense, that we should honour, uh, and but that maybe you know we should have a you know an annual Bertolitz um, lecture or Bertolitz scholarships or something of the kind to you know nail um, this up there so it doesn't go away again. I think one needs to have some kind of level of formal memorialization and to encourage you know Emma Watson and the rest of the UN to do the same because it's also <laughs> clear from her you know she's with the Emma the Watson person I think of when I think of the yeah well I think, <laughs> indeed well she's in all our minds um, but the uh, the the idea of uh, drawing upon 
this group and the countries involved. Um, but it's all, it is clear that there were a number of men in leadership positions yeah. who were uh, pushing this as well and that it was a, a coalition effort in that sense. Yeah, and I think that's a nice part of, of this as well. It seems to sort of acknowledge that this wasn't uh, just women, that this was men. Yes. Kind of specifically uh, supporting them. And we see that through different projects across the world mm. as well. I think Leah had a question again. Because I'm sort of obliged to follow down and print stuff out, I worry that I'm just always asking questions. If anyone else has got this first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that when you were talking about the exceptional dynamic to this with the whole issue of is, I mean, we've got the gender dynamic, and then we've really introduced the south and north aspect of Very similar stories about, oh, well, yeah, she lived with a woman and travelled with a woman all her life, but she wasn't a lesbian. Yeah. And it's sort of similar kinds of stories in that. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering, what role do you think they, I mean, how would they balance between each other of sort of the, the cultural and the material factors, mm-hmm. both then and now, to what extent is it? Is sort of the limitations on what sort of feminist opinions can be expressed in the new system? How much is it? Who can get to Geneva or New York, and how much is it what you can say in Geneva or New York? Dan might know better than I, but um, I mean, I imagine that a lot of those kind of uh, restraints are still certainly in terms of access to the spaces, unless you're kind of identified as somebody that should come and speak at a certain sort of plenary, but actually be a participant, a decision maker. Then there's assumption of certain level of elitism, I think. Or kind of elite kind of access because um, that that's what it is, and I think in that sense. So, but um, in terms of restraints on what can and can't be said, um, I think that's changing. So one of the, I mean, I think one of even David Cameron's comments this week was one of the reasons we're after Daesh is because they throw gays out of windows. So this kind of civilising project of, well, we're very civilised because of the kinds of rules we have around sexuality and women's rights. And the women's rights one's a big one that's emerging at the moment around terrorism, counter-terrorism and um, countering violent extremism. So actually what we've seen in the last 10 years 
is an opening up of spaces to speak about sexuality. I mean, they might be confined spaces in the sense that, you know, if we're talking about the Yogyakarta principles, then there's a space for doing that. But there is also, I think, part of what we see in a, as a kind of response to terrorism is using these, in a way, strategically to make an us and them argument. So, it, so that shift, I guess, unexpected and not what you would necessarily predict as producing that result is something that we're seeing at the moment, but I'm not necessarily sure that the outcome of that is about increasing, um, you know, safety and protecting um, anyone that identifies, you know, in a kind of diverse sexuality, for example. I don't think that's the agenda at all, which is why it's attached to terrorism. And also with women's rights, we know a lot of the kind of emergence around women's rights in the last 10 years has also been about other kind of security agendas. Um, so it's a kind of yes and no, so that I think there is an opening up, but also I think even in the spaces that talk about women and gender, there are only very limited ways you can speak uh, in the sense it's about women's protection, about saving women, um, about sexual violence in particular. Um, then there's quite a lot of space. And participation, <coughs> you ask about women's participation in a kind of benign way, because everyone will agree, yes, we should increase women's participation, but no one will talk about actually how you do that or what resources you might have to mobilise or actually how you have diverse women participating. So, so it's, a, a, a it's not that I think there are restraints on talking about these issues today, but there are still confines in how they might be spoken out. And I would seriously question the agenda about why, which I think is probably very different to San Francisco. Um, Brian, you want to come in? Um, uh, on the first point, Having been involved a in, well, long time ago now in the high Cold War on nuclear weapons issues, which are by definition, well not by definition, but certainly from my point of view, uh, an extreme version of a patriarchal construction uh, of, of male violence in society, probably about the most extreme you can get, um, that in those days that space was utterly closed mm. um, to... Uh, anybody outside of a, uh, an elite, the feminist Simple right. Carol Cohen. I was just about. You just, you just took the, took the words out of my mouth, except for the wonderful work of Carol Cohen. <laughs> uh, Who which, infiltrated the yes, kind of defence professional. C O H N, um, Carol Cohen, who still, who still writes, who still writes, um, who really broke into that. Um, that that space was something those of us who were engaged in popular, popular movements at the time really did break into and democratise and, you know, we were working around NATO and NATO didn't recognise NGOs, so we had to become journalists. Uh, we had to, you know, move across boundaries of what was acceptable. Um, and, yes, there was a question of a certain amount of self-confidence and class and a certain amount of resources that could you get there. Mm -hmm. But, actually... There was a, a mass movement at the time that did have the self-confidence, what, 35 years to go to get on buses in their thousands and take this ferry to Brussels to go and protest in Brussels long before the internet was, was invented. So I think to some extent it's a question of having the self-confidence to break through regardless of um, where you find yourself in the race, class, gender <coughs> perspective. And I think it's too easy to say that that you know just inevitably puts you down. There's a way of constructing that analysis to say almost to excuse inaction, almost. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that's a harsh thing to say. Um, and it isn't to deny that Wilf in 1915 was, you know, women in fur coats, because it certainly was. But nevertheless, their agenda, on the other end of the spectrum, their agenda wasn't any less valid for that. <laughs> yes. uh, I think um, just a, a comment or a thought, and um, having formulated it quite well, so I apologize if it comes to but I think one of the concerns from what you were saying for me was sort of again potentially running into the problem of having the feminist agenda observed or taken or co-opted in the wider discourse around the UN. So, for example, when you you were saying how Cameron uses that sort of language for a certain other agenda, again, sort of the, the transform transformation that feminism is hoping to achieve can be taken away and like for example when you mentioned about getting a scholarship or award in the name of this woman you know for me it all seems or even if you consider you are women women as, as a as a as an entity you know how much are we actually using these issues to transform the institutions to transform how we talk about uh, you know gender relations or are we just being tokenistic as we, and I think feminism in all its different variations has fallen prey to that so many times where its agenda, where its sort of high radical ideas were sort of narrowed down because of the institutions and the way it was used. So I think just sort of, it just came to my mind as a, as a worry when, you know, in these different processes of, you know, doing research projects and using so just sort of a word of well, I mean, I think a, big, a big nod from in front of you. <laughs> tell, tell us about your nod. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about how um, you shocked me and now I forget what it was. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 no, like, I have an idea if it comes back to reality. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the actors that are within you and women are generally very are fully kind of aware of the risks and I actually had this conversation about inside and outside strategies about three different people on three different topics today um, and I, I know that certainly my instinct is to be critical of inside strategies it's like no you've got to shape the system the, the structures in and of itself a problem etc etc but whenever I've said that and then sort of realised someone from UN women sitting nearby and then they pull me aside to talk later and you think oh my gosh you should have said all that stuff about gender experts and advisors and they're like we absolutely agree with you and they know this stuff and they are actually uh, committed to actually much bigger goals than what they know they can achieve through say UN women and I guess my experience is specifically looking at their work on peace and security uh, and they have transformed some things and they have changed some the way the Security Council does some things and the most recent resolution actually the Security Council says it will look at gender issues in every single situation on its agenda now that's a structural change to what the Security Council does it's taken 15 years to get them to actually do that and whether they do it and how they do it and whether it gets co-opted actually into a counter-terrorism project which is where it seems to be going at the moment I think the women <coughs> the women know that where the structural change doesn't happen is the part of the parts of the UN which don't actually that are leaving the gender work to UN women. Does that make sense? So some, I guess, I've changed over the years from thinking. Well, I mean, I do think there's problems with working in the system, and I do think that there are problems within UN women as well. But I have to say, everyone I meet that works there, that's not how I feel when I walk away. 
but I think that it displaces a kind of critique of how other parts of the UN or other international institutions are not doing this work. And one of the things the creation of UN Women does is says, here's the gender expertise over here, and it doesn't actually have it embedded. Or if you want it embedded somewhere else, you ask someone from UN Women to do two roles, one advising another part of the UN as well as doing their own work. So and I think that that's... that's and, and I think you see then the national scheme as well, like every government that creates a ministry, you know, mm-hmm. it's a ministry or sometimes it's just a department within a ministry and, you know, you're running into these problems and I think that, you know, when you're trying to, or when you're trying to sort of highlight the history and discover mm-hmm. it, I think it is a powerful tool, but I think you have to be very careful how use it in the same, you know, mm-hmm. how you connect it into uh, what the UN women do, do now or how you connect it to bigger campaigns, you know, that are very popular now because then, you know, you have a potentially very, you know, powerful tool but then if you sort of, as with issues of gender, you know, we know that it has in many instances become a ticking exercise, you know, like we do X, Y, and Z and, you know, gender taken care of. And if you if you don't use this potential in the right way, you're running the risk of losing, you know, mm. the, the recognition of the history. I mean, having spent most of my professional life as an activist in one form or another, but you know, both having sat, sat down in the street and done newspaper exposés and also worked with officials drafting treaties, I think there's one critical issue wherever you are on the spectrum is whether or not there's always unfinished business mm-hmm. uh, in your situation. If you've already got what I could call the doctrine of the unfinished, if you're always wanting more, uh, or whether you're actually uh, have closed the book, I think is a critical question wherever it is, whichever part you're in, as a, as a guiding point. And because very often I think people can get uh, sucked in, confuse, influence uh, with access. The fact that you're in the room doesn't mean you are doing anything. Um, for example um, so that would just be the, the, the principal point uh, but I, I do take issue with the worrying um, you know I think we have a, a, a discourse which has been suppressed uh, it's clearly been suppressed for uh, from our perspective I generally what we take in this room for bad reasons <laughs> we have unsuppressed it we should um, uh, express it and see where that takes us with, with self-confidence um, and not to worry too much um, about what all the pitfalls might be that might be around the corner because actually once one starts acting then you start to change things in ways which you couldn't see or couldn't predict. I had no idea in having this discussion with class uh, in class that A we would find this wonderful document that, uh, uh, that uh, Carolina found uh, we would make use of it, or be that we were going to be having a roundtable in Geneva with UN women and probably the Brazilian ambassador to discuss how we can take this forward. Um, certainly not when I started looking at the whole issue of uh, the UN at this time. Um, so I think what, one should be less cautious and more, dare I say, uh, flamboyant. Mm-hmm. I think that was implicit, not, not, not <laughs> but radical out, yeah, external kind of projects, maybe rather than internal projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess just kind of carrying on at this point. 
don't really know what I'm trying to say, I guess, but I, just, I, I feel like I've had this conversation back and forth all week, <laughs> which is the, um, I don't know, in one way, I think that like you need to have these sort of, kind of structural inside changes. You need to change the government systems, or you're not, like you have to work within the framework that exists, or you're not going to make any change. But at the same time, um, kind of these changes being co-opted for other uses and like becoming less radical, and then even using kind of pieces like this as like a token of you know, like we've made it and. I don't know. I don't really know what I'm trying to say, but I think that maybe I'm really distributing mm-hmm. So avoiding complacency in some yeah, ways. Yeah, but I, so I this, guess... This satisfies something that was missing, but actually it should awaken actually more curiosity and yeah, kind of also looking at what we do now and why... why you know. mm-hmm. I just I feel like when you're talking about the I think uh, I think, and I think it links also to the institutional point. Um, the interest is there, as I said. Uh, yeah, this. Uh, so her role. So she had a big role in public policy in Brazil. So that's you know in the early research. Because you know, probably don't see more than me about this, but she's influenced a lot of things. And you know, in Brazil, you know, the issue of gender equality is uh, yeah, strong. And we've had a secretaryship that was created for gender equality. Now in the reshuffle of the government, it's been included in another. But I think, I think it's a bit less of the, you know, necessarily of the concrete actions and concrete results that they've necessarily, within a certain period of time, achieved. But that's just the fact that it's become enough of a priority for, you know, for it to be institutionalized. So it's not about the institutions themselves, I think. It's for kind of a way, a push, a concern, you know, a general concern that you have. So, so in Brazil, I would say, uh, and the institutions, yes, definitely. Um, and at the same time, obviously, we have, you know, at the moment, a lot going on in Brazil. So it's, uh, it's you know, the competing agendas are, are very difficult. Uh, so, so definitely, yes. Uh, the embassy here... Um, going to make the link also with uh, you know the foreign ministry uh, uh, in Brazil and um, and yeah I think I think that, yes definitely interesting mm-hmm. okay questions or comments quick question for you because you discovered this and sort of like found this document what do you think is the best way to sort of like disseminate it, sort of disseminate it out and make people more aware of specifically that? Because it's a good document, but I think, I mean, just from the sort of CASD research projects, people do not read the PDFs that you give them. How do you think the best to sort of, I mean, you're talking about the, the governmental 
approach there, but I mean, how do you think people sort of somewhere at age, student age, to get people confused about it? So, I only found this document because the professor there I was in touch with, and uh, she works for the Virtual Museum of Virtuals, and I was looking at the website, and they do have interns that <coughs> young students uh, they're interested in the topic and everything. So I think that one thing that we should do is definitely get in touch with them because they're going to have a lot of more resources and everything. But this particular document, the professor directed me to it because she had found one, one reference to it in a footnote in a book. So you know, one time we took it up. Yeah, I think we need to gather all of the resources and then find what's the most important things are and then try to disseminate it but create, I don't know, we can create another website no, we can, use, the we one, easily. use the one with uh, the museum which they do have everything translated to English if you click on the bottom at the bottom of the page um, so I think just yeah, just any social media maybe I don't know I think it's quite good moving around archives and famous digital archives yeah. Um, self-constructed self archives and stuff, so I think it probably speaks to that. And I think it, it. I think. I mean, the international legal histories. There's a lot of work around that. I think feminist histories as well. But I think it, it, it sort of taps into kind of other things that are going on at the moment. Certainly, the digitisation of feminist histories um, will mean that it has a place in a kind of other sets of stories that are going on at the moment. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>